I think Steve every week wins the background competition. Oh yes, it's very glamorous. Steve's yeah, got a tries, very glamorous background. Yeah, but look, I, I, that's the problem. I sit in the way. Of, I sit in the way of the chaos that's on the oh, side here. Look, yeah. it's clever. Look at that. We even had a um, a conversation, Gemma and I, about because obviously she has daily, multiple daily video calls for work from this very. Yeah. Um, we we thought about how we could maybe spruce up the background, and we and mm. we made plans on Saturday to get down and do some DIY on Sunday. Sunday morning, completely forgot. So it is as yeah. fair as it has ever been. But maybe by next week, it will be improved. Does Gemma do her Zoom calls in that room? Yes, from this exact position. We have one this very spot, and we use it for everything. Does she use a broadcast quality mic? She doesn't, although I would suggest that maybe that might improve the, uh, the audio that would, experience for her colleagues. Imagine that would be a major flex. She'd look amazingly professional, wouldn't she, if she had that microphone in front of her while she was discussing... Numbers. She would be discussing with her bosses. Four! <laughs> Whatever she does. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Global supply chains of veterinary medicine, yes. These um, lines are going up, these ones are going down. We need them all to be going up. Right, get to it. <laughs> My mum did a talk for some of her um, Winchester Cathedral guide colleagues uh, the other mm. day. And um, I just wondered to myself, it's like genuinely, it would have been hilarious. Because obviously it's difficult whenever you use non-microphones on a Zoom, particularly if it's like a 50-minute talk mm. and you're just using the ambient sound and the, and the internal microphone of your computer. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to listen to for, for a period of time. She did very well, but what I, I did suggest right at the very end, you know, if, you, if you're worried about the levels or anything like that, then, then just get a, get a microphone. And then I just suddenly thought about this 70-odd-year-old woman holding a handheld microphone. <laughs> like she's not going to talk about Henry of Blois she's going to start start serenading as some sort of Engelbert Humperdinck. No, but she would get like a lip mic and she took... She took <laughs> what about head mic? Like, like Madonna? Like she a Madonna a mic? mic. Yeah. yeah, get that. Most suitable microphone for a lady of pensionable age. Do let us... <laughs> Who's Henry of Blois? He sounds like he wouldn't be allowed in under the new, the new guidelines. <laughs> Henry of Blois, I watched a 50-minute talk about it. Um, he, was, he was somebody who was important in, like, you know, about a 1,000 years ago, and he gave loads of money to Winchester Cathedral, and um, so is buried there. I think I've been to Blois. Lots more. Have I think you? I've been to Blois, yeah. It's, um, Did you meet How Henry? How do you spell it? How do you spell it? B-L-O-I-S, I believe. Blois. Correct. Ah, okay. Blois. Okay. Uh, I think Blois is in that bit of France where they play rugby. That's where I think Blois is. That bit of France, as in France. No, there's, no, they don't play rugby all over France, because most of them have got a brain. Um, don't start on the rugby again. We're not on air, or are we? Well, we can um, be, depending on, can depending be. on what Rory says next. Yeah, it's, um, it's in that bit of France where... It's in, the equivalent, it's in the French equivalent of the area around Bath, where they don't have proper sport. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on that. What do you say, proper sport? What do you mean? Where they're so kind of devoid of things to do that they have to play rugby. We need to start the podcast because I'm getting very, very... It's between... I have been to Blois. It's between Orléans what and What are you Dor Googling? I can see that you're Googling it. This is not off the top of your head. Burp. You're Googling it and you're glancing down on the computer screen. You cheat. That's what it's for. It's between Le Mans and Orléans. Blois. Sort of south of both. Yeah, Le Mans don't have any sport going on there, do they? In what? fact, just, just off the top of my head, I would say that it's uh, longitude and latitude. <laughs> <laughs> This is where I cut in. This is Beast Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are three fine gentlemen of 199 previous set-piece menus. Rory Smith, 
writer for a fancy newspaper, Stephen Wyeth, commentator for two national broadcasters, and Andrew George Hinchcliffe, commander of the gantry, loyal servant to Sky Sports, father to all 90s left wing backs, husband to at least two wives, and Paul Jewell will have his vengeance in this life or the next. <laughs> that is a great, that's the greatest intro. Can I have that on my headstone, please, when I finally croak it? It will be very expensive because they do it by the letter. It's, I'm, I'm worth it. I'll, I'll pay for it. The food is cake. Oh, birthday now, cake. It, we shouldn't really have a, we shouldn't, shouldn't really have a cake because it's not a birthday. It's not an anniversary. <laughs> but for, for number 200, we have two very large candles in what is actually a very small cake. So by, uh, by the, uh, the methods of not having any fire in the house and also not really wanting to buy a very large cake for one person, here is a cake. Congratulations, Congratulations. everybody. Set piece um, menu number 200. That's amazing. It is, a, it is actually a birthday this week, Hugh. It's Ed's it third birthday. Ed's third birthday. Oh. Either tomorrow or yesterday, depending on your perspective. Well, happy birthday to Ed. Would he like an extra candle and that lemon drizzle cake being sent to him? Well, so there's a, there's a Topsy and Tim book that Ed really likes about their birthday. And in that Topsy and Tim book, they wake up in the morning and there's presents on the edge of their beds. And then they get some rollerblades, although it's not explained who from. And I think, if I'm honest, that they're too young. Um, and then at the end, they have their friends over. Josie is late. And they say, we can't start the party without Josie. But they can start the party without Josie, because Josie's not, not all she's cracked up to be. Uh, and then they get a dinosaur cake. And so I think Ed has basically decided that that is the pattern that birthdays should follow. So we can do the presents on the bed, although I'm not really on board with it. I'm not getting, he keeps saying I want rollerblades. He's not getting rollerblades, he's three. Uh, and he wants a dinosaur cake. And Kate has said she will make him a dinosaur cake. But the secret is that Kate, Kate has no idea how to make a dinosaur cake. And it's gonna be a disaster. And I can't help. I can make a cake, but I don't know how to make it shaped like a stegosaurus. Why, why are you smirking at your wife's really inability to make it? Really it's funny. Really funny. Really? But it's an eye, and she can, it's, it's just gonna be hilarious. Maybe this cake that Kate is, uh, Kate is gonna make will be a whole new not a breed of dinosaur, a whole new type species. of dinosaur, species, species of dinosaur, the mm. can't tell what it is, a or <laughs> it's melted a or yeah. just it's, it's the elephant manosaurus, something like that could clearly, what, what shape is she, what kind of dinosaur is she, is she going to be bold and go for the, the Plodocus or is it kind of Stegosaurus she's going to go for? In, in, in the Topsy and Tim book it is a Stegosaurus, so stegosaurus, I think that's the, that's which the is the greatest of the dinosaurs. The, is the joint best. Joint best with... Triceratops. <laughs> It's good that you haven't gone for the T-Rex. I, I, I like your style. Bit obvious, the T-Rex, isn't it? Bit obvious. Come on, I'm not a child. Have you seen that video of the woman that made the ginormous caterpillar cake? You know, the one that you can buy in... In M&S. In yeah. M&S or, or all supermarkets. Which Just M&S. Is it only M&S? Yeah. The Colin the Caterpillar thing? Yeah, Colin the Caterpillar is a Marks and Spencer's brand, Steve. Come on, catch up. Sorry, I don't spend as much time in there as you do. Have you, have you, seen, the, <laughs> have you seen the video online of the, like ginormous giant size one that's been created you should surreptitiously show that video to ed and then ed can pressurize kate to recreate the moment good idea that so that is the food a myriad of cakes the football is chinch do you know what we're talking about today um uh, you clearly i don't but i have a reason for that because my head is chock full of red hot nations league action I've done so many matches, I've enjoyed them immensely. So sadly, sadly, I have no idea what we're going to be talking about, but I'll still try to participate as fully as I can. Well, courtesy of The Telegraph, who broke the original story, and hopefully not ruining all the hot takes that you might have heard already on this subject, we are talking about the latest consideration of elite football, given the name Project Something. 
Although it's not just Project Big Picture, the idea developed by Liverpool and Manchester United to apparently increase the power of the top, top, top clubs, as Jamie Redknapp would say, with the make weight of a new redistribution model. It is also a why now and for what reason? Are the big six in particular noting that the pandemic provides a unique opportunity to update the structure of the Premier League and its relationship with the EFL? Or is it blatant opportunism with the big clubs using COVID as an excuse to get what they've always wanted anyway? That is all to come. Chinch is making copious notes. I can see. Am I? Oh, yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get in touch with the podcast. Sepiesmenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Remember uh, that we bumped Tom Sherrington to this week from last week because we didn't have time. In an effort to make sure that it doesn't happen again, he's going to go first this week. Dear SPM team, long-time listener, first-time correspondent. In response to your discussion about handball in SPM 198, I wonder what the perspective is in leagues outside the UK. I've seen the kind of penalty decision that have so enraged us Premier League watchers routinely given over the past few years in high-profile leagues such as Serie A and La Liga, less renowned European leagues, including in Hungary and Croatia, and more emerging competitions like MLS in America. Do these cultures have an altogether different take on what handball should be? Whilst you and I might think that a player should not be automatically penalised if the ball hits their hand, but only if particular conditions are fulfilled, does much of the rest of the world think a player should generally be penalised if the ball hits their hand apart from in limited exceptions? The general assumption is that through needless tweaking, IFAB have forced a handball law onto football that no one in the world wants. But are many football cultures actually quite comfortable with where we are currently at? There were 57 penalties given for handball in Serie A last season and 47 in La Liga. Have these countries demanded change for the past few seasons have been waiting for the weight of the Premier League to come behind them? Or do they not feel such change is necessary? It seems the time has come where the Premier League have been given discretion to have a more nuanced take on how they judge handball. But has the time also come for us to acknowledge how handball is judged elsewhere? So in summary, do different parts of the world have vastly different interpretations of what a handball offence should be? And is this broadly acceptable? Or is a completely universal application needed? And if so, which interpretation are we to use? Keep up the good work from Tom. Stephen. (laughs) Well, do you know what? I I haven't covered Italian football for a couple of seasons now, and I have never covered Spanish football. So I can't really talk with a great deal of authority about the reaction to controversial decisions in those leagues. The one that I do, of course, cover the most is the Bundesliga. And I don't think we saw the same uptick in handball offences in the Bundesliga as the stats would suggest were seen in Italy and Spain. Although, as I've spoken about before, because they are more used to VAR in Germany, there is a greater acceptance of decisions that are made with the benefit of VAR, you, you see far fewer complaints across the board when VAR intervenes in the Bundesliga. There is a general shrug of the shoulders and they just got on, get on with it. And, and, and I think we probably will get to that stage in the Premier League. But I know, Rory, you've, you've spoken before about this idea that maybe footballers or the football culture in other places is just more accepting of the the rules, the regulations than we are in the Premier League. And and maybe we feel that because it's our game, we should have greater control over what the decision makers come up with. Yeah, I'm in a similar position to you. I I don't follow individual controversies enough to to have a sense of, you know, are there more controversial handballs in Spain or Italy or Germany or France than there are in England? 
and my general reaction to everything is that that partly it's to do with the kind of bleating and moaning approach that the English have to everything in life. And therefore it happens in England and it's, it's treated with this kind of, it reaches this pitch of frenzy, the coverage of it, that isn't really warranted by the, the number of incidents or the, the scale of the incidents. And you kind of, these basically, you know, uh, what's the word? Like bo- these borderline decisions create these intense scandals that, is, that aren't really warranted. You know, you can say, look, we've got a bit of a problem here. This isn't really working which is my general view on the handball, on the handball rule. But I think a lot of the kind of reaction is a bit overblown. But then, and this isn't meant to be kind of a xenophobic stereotype, there's kind of no more overblown football culture than Italy. You know, the inventor of the Moviola and the place where that, the idea that you'd have a, a four-hour TV show after games purely to criticise refereeing decisions, that's where that originated. It seems strange that we should have a more frenzied culture, a more frenzied reaction to it than, than the Italians. But... My instinct is that it it has been more problematic in the Premier League than it has than it has anywhere else. And I know that the rule that they instituted at the start of this season that's the rule as it's in, in, as it's implemented everywhere, isn't it? That's the basically that brought us into line with Europe. So my guess is that I don't know. Maybe may, yeah, maybe Steve's right. Maybe Steve's Steve's right to say that because it's in inverted commas our game, we feel as though any change to it is we feel any change to it a little bit more personally, despite the fact that it's David Ellery who's doing it and he's British. But the, but the individual European leagues wouldn't have lobbied for the change in the law. Because it seems as if the law's been changed to take the hand out of football completely. That seems to be what it was designed to do. So the hand would play no part in any creation of goals or scoring of goals. So they changed the law by which then the individual leagues then follow. But then I suppose the only, the only natural kind of course of events is for things to happen, let things play out, see what decisions are made following that law. And then if certain leagues aren't happy with it, but it has to be something that every league agrees to. You know, the Premier League can say, well, we're really unhappy with this handball. We, we want it changed. But you can't just change that law, presumably for the Premier League. You have to change it for La Liga and Serie A. You have to change it across Europe. That law has to be changed for, for all those leagues. So you can't independently say we're not happy. So can you change our law for our game rather than anyone else's? I've done a couple of, not as many Nations League games as Chinch has done in the last few days, but I have done a couple. One of them on my own, one of them with the finest co-commentator in the industry. And I know we're gonna, we will talk a little bit more about Virgo's contribution to that game <laughs> later on. Adam is a very good coach. I love working with Adam. By yeah, I know, yeah. I know he listens by, and, and we get on very well. So I'm not having you leave no, I wasn't the there. garden path that makes it seem like... <laughs> I only mentioned it, I know you like him. Uh, but in both, he's, games, he's good, Roy. But he's still got. He's clearly got work to do. Carry on, Steve. In both of the games that I've covered, there were incidents involving the ball striking the arm of a defender who had his arm in the teapot position. There was VAR in one of the games. There wasn't in the other. Neither penalty was given, and I reckon both incidents in the early weeks of the Premier League season would have led to penalty kicks, and they were both waved away without any sort of thought beyond it. By the referee and I I think perhaps whilst it's fashionable to blame the foreigners it's Europe's fault I think maybe is there a chance in the early weeks of the Premier League we overdid it slightly mm, possibly did we, we over interpret the rule and then say oh this is what everybody else has been doing for the last couple of seasons when in fact we got a little bit carried away you say the defender's arms were in the teapot position was there other arm in the spout position <laughs> it, it was <laughs> And they were just it's fortunate. The, it's the natural defensive position for a fullback closing down an, an attacking player. This is how you would definitely stand. That's what I was taught from very early on. Stand like a teapot, look like an idiot. 
that that's that that would suggest that the next great kind of development in football is to go from defenders closing down the high press with the, in the teapot position would be to go full on walk like an Egyptian. That's the <laughs> that's the next step. Get Kieran Trippier belting down the right the right hand side to close down a winner with his arms going out like that. That would be people want to see. Uh, thankfully, we are now going to move on. Laura Berman gets in touch about last week's episode about team talks and press conferences. Dear happy, grumpy, sleepy and dopey. She says Hugh, Stephen, Chinch and Rory, respectively. I I'm think- dopey. Oh, yes. What? Yes, I know his name. She makes that very clear, very clear. I think, I think there is an additional avenue that was not discussed with regard to managing. You know Zoom can't handle two audio inputs at the same time, Rory. That's going to be really detrimental to Laura's email. I think there is an additional avenue that was not discussed with regard to... Oh, by the way, you're not going to like the rest of this email either. I should preview. That was not discussed with regard to managers' comments to the press. To continue with the Mourinho example that was brought up in the podcast, we all seem to take it for granted that he's a wily operator. And of course, whatever he's saying publicly is highly strategic. However, is it possible that in the Ndombele case, for example, he didn't necessarily intend to castigate his player in front of the press in the aftermath of a tough match and a poor result? Couldn't we just as easily assume that in scapegoating his player, he was merely impulsively lashing out? This is the same man who once attempted to wallop an opposing assistant manager for having the temerity to celebrate a late equaliser. He knew the cameras were rolling. That wasn't strategic. He was just being an idiot. Maybe we give managers too much credit when they assume their behaviour has some grand underlying strategy behind it. One press conference moment that always stuck out to me, says Laura, was a question by none other than Rory Smith to Jurgen Klopp before the 2019 Champions League final. Rory asked Klopp a seemingly simple question, which I can't remember now, about tactics. Something like, how do you expect Tottenham to approach the match tactically? And what will you do in response? Tactically. Klopp's response was a bit prickly. He said something like, do Americans want to read about tactics? And I suspect the question was so basic that he wasn't expecting it and was caught off guard. He would have anticipated questions about losing the prior final, about the pressure of being the favourite to win, about losing the Premier League by one point and so on. But one basic question about actual football left him flummoxed and defensive. Or maybe I'm wildly overstating the significance of that moment because as an American, I resent the implication that I don't care about tactics. How dare you, Jurgen? I follow Michael Cox on Twitter too, you know. Klopp reminds me of Roger Federer in that they are both so charming that no one actually notices that they're a bit petty and churlish in defeat. And both have blamed the wind for poor performances. Maybe at the Premier League manager's restaurant, Klopp is the charismatic, cunning PR manager whose winning personality fills the restaurant with VIPs, but who then phones and berates newspaper critics who criticise the quality of the food. Uh, Best regards, that is Laura in Brooklyn. Why would I not like that email? That's a really good email. Uh, no, it's start. an excellent email. It's just the fact that uh, she brought up a question that you asked for Jurgen Klopp, which apparently was just a bit much for him. To... She's, she's definitely right that we read far too much into, into what managers say, and we, we continually kind of assume that they are plots, that everything is a plot, whereas chaos is always more likely than, than steaming as is, is a general rule of thumb in life. So I think I, that bit I agree with completely. I think whether it's Mourinho lashing out or whether it's, to be honest, whether it's just people saying things they don't quite mean and it's just the first answer that pops into their head and, and they're, you know, they're doing like 19 interviews after a game and one of them, they, they maybe get a bit wrong or whatever. Um, or maybe there's, there's some other explanation that he thinks that's, that's actually what the player needs. I, I, I think what we, what we do generally is assume that managers have this kind of like Aristotelian grasp of their, own, of their own rhetoric. In fact, that's wrong. Hang on. I think what we, we, we're too quick to assume that, that managers have like a Periclean grasp of their own rhetoric, that they, they don't kind of... That I'm, I'm now laughing as I've got my, my, my ancient Greeks. 
It's going to get caught out, Hugh, isn't it? Nobody will ever know. It happens to me every single day. I just get caught out with my ancient Greeks. I really do. I'm I'm still Googling the first one you mentioned, Rory. (laughs) How many people um, uh, had these conversations on the hill of Penix? I got the the Penix into a column the other day. That's exactly why I bring it up. I was quite impressed. Um, To which your boss, by the way, said that the reason you write that stuff in your columns is that there's no way that we'd allow it to stay in the edit of the podcast. (laughs) We do assume that managers know what they're saying. We, we basically imbue them with superhuman powers of, of insight and assume that everything they say has a meaning behind it. And, and I think often it doesn't. The clock thing, I, remember, I, can't remember what, I can't remember what the question was. It was something relatively straightforward. But I think, it was, I think it was to do with a game that had just happened rather than a game that was about to happen. And I know that because I very rarely go to press conferences before games. So it's unlikely to, to have been that situation. It may have been after Barcelona and it may have been a tactical question. And he did respond a bit prickly. And occasionally I find actually with managers, if you ask them a really simple question, you get quite good stuff out of them because they're not really, it brings their guard down. It's not, they're so kind of bamboozled by the idea that there appears to be a question without an agenda that they actually say something interesting by mistake. They are often trying to get out of the room without saying anything controversial or scandalous or that might create some sort of scene. And that's their overriding objective rather than kind of putting out an agenda so I think a lot of the time they don't really have an agenda they just they just want their their entire agenda is I want this press conference to be over that's their main agenda at all press conferences uh, Laura was bang on I think about us sometimes giving managers more credit for what they say before or after games than perhaps they deserve I think the incident she picked out though about the Ndombele thing at Burnley that really was quite calculated. If you wanted to give Mourinho any credit whatsoever, he threw Ndombele under the bus to protect the other player he took off at half-time. Harry Winks, who maybe he thought deserved uh, an arm around his shoulder and not to be exposed to scrutiny for his first-half performance. And, and it's, that's really insightful on Klopp. Because it's, it's re- we saw a very recent example of it with the, 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 the Roy Keane sloppy comment after the Liverpool-Arsenal mm. game, which was... You know, I think we've talked about it was a poor choice of words, but actually did highlight something, you know, some, some frailties about their, their defensive performance that day, which were exposed a few days later quite catastrophically by Aston Villa. So actually Klopp's prick, it, whilst it was a really great exchange and Klopp got an awful lot of credit for, for winning the verbal joust with Keane on that occasion, Keane... Keane's observation was actually quite prescient. Yeah, it was right. He was right. And you wonder actually whether that's why Klopp got annoyed. So that thing where you're trying to convince yourself of something that you want to be true. And Klopp would have looked at that performance and thought, I, I want it to be true that we were really good. But he would have known in the back of his mind that, that they, were, they were sloppy at times. And as you say, that then bore fruit, what, six days later. So it may be that the annoyance was that, he, that Keane had kind of said something that kind of struck a nerve almost. Roy Keane actually said what maybe an interview would try to tease out of Jurgen Klopp himself yeah. in terms of how, how do you look at your own performance? Would he mention about maybe, yeah, we're a bit poor in this department. That, Keane said it. And maybe again, that's why Jurgen Klopp, well, again, rather than him saying it, Roy Keane, but that's what the pundits are there for. That's what yeah. the journalists are there for, to have their say and say, well, I've weighed it all up. This is what I think. And then if a coach isn't happy about that, and I think Jurgen Klopp got the wrong end of the stick. He thought the whole performance was, he didn't say yeah. that. No, yeah. I said certain aspects were sloppy. So Klopp, I think, misheard and presumed it was the whole performance that Roy Keane was talking. So again, it got sorted out. But again, it's good. That's what, you know, if I was there and I saw that, and again, the criticisms, and if a coach comes back to you and says, what do you mean? You can tell him exactly what you mean. So rather mm. than the coach hoping the coach is going to say it, which he probably never will, it is the job of the pundit or the, the, the journalist to actually say, you know, I've, I've seen enough football, I've played enough football. 
this is what I think. And again, then you've got to back that up. So you've got to know your stuff. The difficulty, that's absolutely right for pundits. The difficulty for journalists is that you're often there in, in different, with different kind of jobs to do. So there will be a journalist whose job is to write the match report and say, this is what the game was like. There'll be a, often be a, for big games, there'll be a journalist who's, whose job is to write the colour piece and pick out a specific aspect of the game and say, this is what I think of this. But there's also someone who's there just to write a news story. And the, the tradition within the British media is that that news story has to be, you'd, it can't be Liverpool were sloppy last night because this, this and this happened. The journalist explaining it has to be manager or player or whatever saying they were sloppy and it's why you quite often see Roy Keane's words picked up and put on back pages because the, the managers won't say what people want them to say but Keane will give them a line and to, it's not the journalist's fault in the slightest but it, it is a failing I think of, of British sort of football journalism convention almost you, it doesn't need to be that way it's actually quite an outdated model of doing it if the journalist thinks it's sloppy if the match report inside says Liverpool was sloppy the back page would say Liverpool was sloppy it's 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 slightly disingenuous and it's a, it's a convention that to me we need to kind of get rid of a little bit. There needs to be more analysis of, of occasions when managers misunderstand the nature of a question that's being posed, assume that something is behind it when it is not and respond uh, in accordance with that. So for example, it's understandable perhaps that a manager will think that a Roy Keane comment will lack nuance, but actually there was an extra layer to what Roy Keane mm. said, which was worth the consideration of the manager giving his, his response to. And that the occasion with Pep Guardiola and Damien Johnson, I think it was in, in Pep's first or second year, where Pep just slightly misunderstood the nature of the question that was being asked and therefore it escalated and escalated and escalated. And actually it was all based on the foundation of incre incredibly flimsy uh, miscommunication or misunderstanding standing and and it was yeah he just was considered to be completely inappropriate in his behavior when in fact it was just just the, the, the tiniest of things um finally to a couple of emails prompted by the expertise laden screwdriver talk from last week um nick misery in london has written in dear all there i was feeding my poodle a bit of old sausage listening to your latest pod and your various ruminations on screwdriver heads when rory posited that it was perhaps the most blokey conversation that you'd ever had. Giggle, I thought. Yes, what an astute observation by New York Times' Rory, as usual. But like most of Rory's astute observations, on second thoughts, what utter bunkum. Because I think <laughs> I've listened... <laughs> because he says, I think I've listened to some hundred-odd episodes of you four blokes talking, and last I checked, it's mostly been about football, bears, and their severities, and most recently, which one of the various women in your lives made the best lasagna? <laughs> screwdrivers or no screwdrivers, Rory, I fear the blokey shit may have sailed. Uh, Laurie Moorhead has this. Hello chaps. Firstly for Hugh. I really do love the pod. It really is great work. I really hope you keep it up. I say this all sincerely but also say from the knowledge it is a correspondence requirement. It is Laurie and well done. Thoroughly enjoyed episode 199's exploration of the undeniable purchase provided by the Phillips head screwdriver. From trying to visual wielding said screwdriver or Alan Key my mind obviously drifted to how Premier League managers might assemble furniture. At the risk of flogging a dead horse, please bear with me, he says in oh. italics, as I present to you, managers most likely to not use a Phillips head screwdriver to assemble furniture. Manager most likely to implement overlapping joints, Chris Wilder. Manager most likely to arc weld steel, Slaven Bilic. Manager most likely to order from Ikea and pay for at-home assembly, Frank Lampard. Manager <laughs> construct initially impressive furniture that falls apart after three years, Jose Mourinho. Manager most likely to buy aged but still premium pieces from Gumtree, searching the Chelsea and Kensington area, 
Mikel Arteta, and manager most likely to lose their pencil behind their ear during construction, Roy Hodgson. Uh, all the best from Laurie. Excellent work, Laurie. Thank you very much for the correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, now, one of the subjects that we've often returned to on Set Piece Menu, and one that has had significant consideration, particularly over the course of the last few months, is the structure of English football. We've wondered if Leagues 1 and 2 should be regionalised. We've considered how the paradox of financial sustainability and wish fulfilment cripples so many lower league clubs. You've told us about salary caps and what you think of them, while all the time trying to reflect the unique nature of the pyramid and how it is something that should be protected. Even though in the face of such overwhelming and yet underwhelming content, there are those who have come up with a different idea, one that we had not considered. In simple, very simple terms. The project big picture idea developed by the owners of Liverpool and Manchester United initially with the support of a number of Premier League clubs, it would appear, and an on-the-record endorsement from the EFL would reduce the Premier League to 18 teams, change the voting rules and the playoffs, scrap parachute payments to the EFL, replacing them with a £250 million rescue fund up front and then 25% of the Premier League's annual income. And finally, both the League Cup, hooray, and the Community Shield, boo, would be abolished, so any future Andy Hinchcliffe's would have only one trophy in their cabinets. There has been considerable condemnation of not only the deal, but the way that it was worked on in secret. The Premier League, the government, the F Football Supporters Association do not like it. But there should be no doubt that if this has the slightest of chances of coming about, it is because of the context provided by the coronavirus pandemic. Are those clubs in favour of the idea seeking to restructure English football because COVID has shone a light on the problems they're in? Or are they using it as an excuse to get what they might have wanted all along? So is this an opportunity or opportunism? So my, my, my reaction initially to reading it was one of complete bafflement. I felt as though I should have a really strong opinion, but didn't. So I spent the re most of Sunday trying to work out what I thought and getting increasingly stressed about it because I felt it was the sort of thing that, given my job, I should probably have an opinion on. You asked the audience, though, Rory. How, yeah, how well, did that go? So, well, interestingly, uh, until I was wrongly accused of being misleading, misleading by a Daily Telegraph correspondent. Um, no, so the, the, the thinking behind that was that... I saw a lot of reaction on, on social media that was, this is evil incarnate, this is a desperate power grab, isn't this awful, this is the end of football as we know it, all this kind of apocalyptic stuff. And basically one of my, one of my, my main reaction to it is that whenever anyone suggests any change at all in football, the reaction is, no, can't do that, don't like it, leave it as it is. Even from people who would broadly, I think, agree with the sentiment that the current model is unsustainable and was probably unsustainable before COVID, that, that we were reaching a a point where the, the problems were so entrenched and the, the sort of division so so deep that we all kind of knew that something was going to have to change at some point. And that's not to say that this is perfect. It's obviously not perfect. But it isn't, I don't think it's an unreasonable starting point for a discussion. And so I, I just wanted to ask people basically for specifics that they objected to and what most people came back with and said they don't like the change in the voting rights. They don't like the idea that power should be concentrated in the hands of effectively six clubs so that the bid six in the future can can force through other changes un, unobjected. And I think that's completely legitimate. But it, what struck me as interesting was that a lot of the actual proposals people don't object to. There wasn't a groundswell of objection to the idea that you might get rid of the community shield. That's not something I agree with. I don't, I don't really think the community shield is a problem for anybody, but people didn't seem to have a big issue with the idea that it might be banjaxed. Same with the League Cup. There's not a great, huge amount of, of, of objection to, the, to maybe getting rid of the League, League Cup or maybe making it elected. The, there isn't an objection, obviously, to the, to the 
the, the upfront fee that would be given to the EFL to bail them out. There's not an objection to the redistributed ending parachute payments, which the EFL themselves have been asking for for ages anyway. Um, a more equitable re revenue redistribution seems to make sense to quite a lot of people. The idea of having a, a women's super league that is independent of both the Premier League and the FA, I think it's a really good idea. I think that makes sense. I don't know if enough money is put aside for it in the current proposals, but I think that the general principle of it is, is sound. The bit that people have a problem with is the idea of entrenching primacy through changing the voting rights to the extent that I wonder actually if that is the bit that they would be prepared to get rid of. Because it doesn't, that doesn't make a huge amount of sense. You don't, de you don't need that to force through all the other changes. The other big one that I thought you'd get a lot of objection to is the 18-team Premier League. But as far as I can tell, to me that actually makes quite a lot of sense. And as far as I can tell, there's not a vast amount of really spirited objection to that either. So I was int intrigued. It was, it was, that tweet was kind of me trying to work out what I feel about it, but also trying to establish how much of the objections how much of the objection is there is a thing here that I don't like and how much of it was this is change and I don't like change, everything should stay the same. And I, without being patronising, I do think that is a huge element of it. I, I don't know what people could suggest. If they came back and said, if a working group of Premier League teams came back and said, look, we've got this plan, what we're going to do is we're going to revert to the pre-1992 model of revenue distribution where 50% goes to the top flight, 25% to the championship, and 12.5% of all the money raised from TV, from TV revenue goes to Leeds 1 and 2. People would, people would object. People would say, oh, that's not good enough. It's going to leave, you know, it's going to, it's going to bankrupt the bottom half of the Premier League. It's going to do this, that, and the other. There is, there is a football is hardwired to resist all change. But I think that change is now, in, there's now such a compelling case that change has to be made and relatively quickly. As lots of people have said, there's nothing else on the table. There are no other ideas on the table to, to get the EFL through this and to change football's model. And yet when there's one suggestion, the immediate response is, this is a powder, this is awful, this is awful, we shouldn't do it, you know, we shouldn't do this. And it shuts down the, the motive for change itself. And I think that's quite damaging. Uh, we should just explain for those who haven't uh, kind of read the minutiae that, that, that the voting rights currently are 14 out of the 20 Premier League clubs need to, it's one member, one vote, 14 out of the 20 Premier League clubs need to agree to something for it to, 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 to happen, for something to be passed. That would change to being uh, basically of the 18 that there would be, six of nine with, um, with extended voting rights or extended power, entrenched power, as you said, Roy, would, would have to agree to something for that to, to, that to be passed. And in addition to the top six, those three are um, Southampton, West Ham and Everton, because they are the ones that have spent most time in the Premier League currently out of the 20 that are there. So the voting rights would be six out of nine given extra power. And the top six obviously clearly would think that that might be them in each and every vote. This looks like opportunism because of the coronavirus pandemic. But as Roy was saying, this was a conversation about the structure of English football that needed to be had anyway, regardless. Because, you know, speak, working on the EFL, speaking to the people who run the EFL, speaking to people who run their clubs, they, they knew, the league and the clubs knew this was, they couldn't sustain this. Something needed to happen anyway. But is it because, again, coronavirus comes along, it looks like the giant clubs are then making a grab for the game and wanting to change things because they want to change things. But this, as we say, this is a conversation we needed to have anyway. Did we need to make the Premier League a little bit smaller? Did we need to see again whether we can restructure the championship and, and beyond for, for, the, for, the, for the good of the English game? But because coronavirus is there, it looks as if, it, again, it's the big boys jumping in and said, right, we'll take control of this. But the voting rights issue is the major one. 
more people have to be involved in those decision, uh, decisions, clearly. Yeah, we should just say very quickly that the, the story, the reporting in the story suggests that this has been an idea that has been talked about for up to three years involving yeah. Liverpool mm-hmm. and Manchester United, and they've only brought those other uh, members of the top six, the big six, um, in over the last few days prior to this story being leaked to the Daily Telegraph, which is an interesting timing, bearing in mind if there is going to be some sort of PR battle that has to take place between this group and the Premier League, it's interesting that they should do it just after the Premier League announced £14.95 pay-per-view uh, matches until the end of uh, whenever it is, which might have put them in a slightly difficult position PR-wise. And so it might have been considered a good time uh, to release something that would appear to the Premier League to be very much against their processes, processes and traditions. Yeah, it was Sam Wallace in the Telegraph who broke the story, who therefore deserves credit. But the Athletic have done... Do. Sorry, I, I, I was coming to that. He is an excellent journalist. He's an excellent journalist and a lovely man. And it, my guess is that because it's Sam... Are, are, all, are all football reporters at the Telegraph excellent journalists <laughs> and, lovely, and lovely men? No. <laughs> and and, and we, we will thankfully not know any more than that because the previous part has been edited out. Because it's Sam and because Sam's a really good journalist, I, I think it probably isn't... a. a my, in, my instinct would be that it's not a deliberate, let's, give, let's get this out and see what happens. I think someone said to me yesterday, there's, there's an argument that by, by releasing it, you undermine it. And I think that's probably true. But I suspect it's, it's, the, it's the fruit of good journalism rather than the fruit of being used as a patsy for someone, because Sam's not that sort of journalist. Um, but there was, a, there, there was a really good piece in, on The Athletic about it as well today. Uh, detailing how long these conversations have been, go- been going on. I think you can make a case that they are exploiting the situation. There is an opportunism within the, situa- within the situation. That, I don't know if it's to do with the £14.95 uh, pay-per-view thing, but they, they are obviously cl- clearly aware that, that there is a point now where the EFL needs help. Someone has to do something about the EFL. The Premier League haven't done anything about it. The government aren't doing anything about it. Um, if you speak even in the National League, the government bail out money, it's, it's still... I'm speaking to someone from the from a club in the National League the other day who said, for a piece that might be out by the time this podcast gets out, who said that basically they're using the government bailout to, to silence objections to the fact that the situation with fans is ridiculous. It's completely insane, the situation with fans. It is the best example of how insane Britain's response to the, to the pandemic has been. No one else is stepping up to the plate. And I think there is a, as I say, I don't agree with this plan. I don't think it's a particularly good plan, but I, I think there is a point at which you have to respect the fact that it's really easy. In fact, can I tell you a story? So, is it that top two in Tim one again? No, it's a better story. <laughs> About the so I, got, I got thrown off philosophy at uni because my, my tutor said I wasn't clever enough to deal with it. And the reason that I wasn't clever enough to deal with it was because I found Socrates, obviously this is ancient philosophy, found Socrates really annoying because all he did was knock down other people's ideas. He never actually said, do you know what we should do, lads? We should do this. It was all like, well, that's rubbish. Don't do that. That's all rubbish. All problems, no solutions. Yeah, he called it a dialectic, but it wasn't. It was just bull- it was just a, a, a sort of grouchy man saying, oh, that's a rubbish idea. You don't want to do that. And it really annoyed me. And I was a bit like, well, this guy's not actually being, a, being constructive. And that's, I realized then that that's how my brain works, that I don't think there's any real value in saying, well, you can't do that. And what's your alternative? Well, I don't, I don't have one. It's somebody else's job. Like, th- this is a plan that obviously works for the top six. It works for a, a, a relatively large swathe of the EFL. I saw the point made today, and it's a really good point. The, the, the clubs in League Two don't care whether the top six gather any more power in the Premier League. They don't, that's not relevant to them. This is, this is, this is a, a problem of the Premier League's own making to an extent that it's cut the rest of the pyramid off so much. But now, you know, 
24 teams, probably 48 teams, and most of League One as well, will be looking at, looking at and thinking, well, I don't care if Liverpool and Man United make all the decisions, or whether it's Burnley or Leicester. It's all completely irrelevant to me and my existence. What they're doing is they're suggesting I get two and a half million quid more. So I'll do that, thanks. These clubs are facing potential oblivion. And this is at least the plan that might get them out of that. And I think that it, it deserves a bit more credit, even though it's clearly very cynical and quite manipulative, and it is opportunistic you have to kind of treat it as, well, at least this is a plan. Because the alternative at the moment is that everyone just sits around talking and clubs go to the wall. And the, the inequalities that we have in football already just become more and more entrenched. So you can criticise them for saying the detail of the plan is, that's why I think the specifics are really important. You can say, I don't like this specific bit, but to say, well, this plan is, is rubbish. It, it's, just a power, it's just a power grab. Well, of course, there's a quid, a quid pro quo. Because these are businesses and they're, going to do, they're not going to do things that aren't in their interest. But even with it, within that, is there, some, is there some merit in a lot of the ideas? And I think, to be honest, there, there is a lot of merit in some of the ideas. I wouldn't want them instituted as they are presented. But it's, it's a good starting point. Because nobody else at all in six months, through the vast majority of which there has been no football, no one else has come close to actually even having an idea. Okay, so redistribution or better distribution of wealth, most certainly a good thing. Although Socialist. Although. Yeah. Get back to children. Vietnam. <laughs> although those that I know who support Macclesfield and Berry or followed the stories of those clubs going under very carefully would tell you that they were badly run football clubs. And would the extra money that they would get as a result of this proposal have changed the fact that they were badly run football clubs? There was an awful lot of suggestions as, as Macclesfield's situation was unravelling at a time when huge sums of money were being paid in the transfer window that those two things were, were simply unacceptable, that they were going on at the same time. And Andy Fraser, friend of the pod, provider of some of our better ideas, so clearly a man of good judgment, who is a big Macclesfield fan, took a couple of people to task, a couple of you know, senior journalists to task on Twitter saying, look, Macclesfield's owners were doing a terrible job of running the club. Mm. Giving them an extra million quid, two million, two and a half million, whatever it is, would not have, would not have changed the fact that the club was being run into the ground. So just... Yes, the, the money needs redistributing, but surely the issue really is, is more of a structural thing. It's not just about giving clubs or the EFL more money. It's about making sure that the clubs are run in an appropriate way. And that wasn't mm. the case at Macclesfield and Berry. They have gone out of business and decimated communities and people's livelihoods because of the ownership, not because they didn't get a greater share or not just because they weren't getting a greater share of money fil filtering down from the Premier League. That might have helped them survive a little bit longer, but it, it wouldn't have ultimately changed their destiny. So that needs to be part of this conversation as well. And it, it feels to me a little bit as though this £250 million that's being talked about is a bribe to all intents and purposes. Because bearing in mind that Premier League clubs spent £1.2 billion in the transfer window, it's a fairly small sum of money in terms of the money that is sloshing around in the, the Premier League economy. 
And are we saying, right, that amount of money, uh, less than a quarter of what was spent in the summer transfer window, is solving, how long is that supposed to be solving the EFL's problems for before it rears its head again? Because it's certainly not going to be 25 years. We'll, we'll be back here with clubs going out of business very, very quickly again. Yeah, the £250 million is very much a bribe. And, but to, to play devil's advocate to an extent, if you're drowning and someone th- throws you a lifeboat in exchange for your vote, you didn't vote for it. Not if that lifeboat's got a slow puncher. And to be honest, mate, I, this is an excellent extension of the metaphor, but I think you'd take your chances, wouldn't you? If the, if the alternative is no lifeboat, no, yeah, no lifeboat, still be, still, you'd still be like, well, all, yeah, all right, maybe. Let's see how slow it is. The other thing that's, that I think is actually a really good idea is the, the abolition of parachute payments, which works in conjunction with the 250 million. The 250 million is to get the, the football league through, basically. Yes, that, that's football. an upfront payment to get to, to basically uh, try and fill the black hole that's being yeah. created by the, the, the pandemic. Then the 25% of all future um, income that is the that may be a lifeboat which has may be made of slightly sturdy material more well, sturdy material well so the difference is that at the moment 92 percent of all premier league tv money goes to premier league clubs eight percent is used for solidarity payments and parachute payments what they're basically saying is we'll reduce that to 75 percent, but we'll get rid of we'll get rid of parachute payments so you will all get some money from everyone will will benefit from the premier league's kind of wealth i think that in itself is a much better idea and is also one that the, the EFL and particularly Rick Parry have been saying is, is necessary. And I think if you look at the effect that the parachute payments have on the championship in particular, it not only incentivizes, sort of somewhat, I think it was in that athletic piece as well. I've read quite a lot about this. Um, Martin Samuel's very good on it as well in the mail. Um, saying that it, it sort of deprives clubs of their right to gamble to get to the Premier League. Good. Clubs shouldn't be gambling to get to the Premier League. The, the problem in, 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 in English football is that it's, it is still a pyramid, but the drops from each level of the pyramid, certainly the top two, are far too steep. So you go into the Premier League, you get all this money, you spend it, you get relegated, and suddenly you're a bit like, well, we can't afford any of these wages, we don't have any money coming in. It's good if, you're, if you are disincentivizing clubs from spending beyond their means to do that. If you're saying in the Championship League 1 and League 2, you get a consistent sort of, rather than getting a big flood of money, from the parachute payments to certain clubs, which then encourages everybody else around them to say, well, you know, you look at wage inflation in the championship, it's ridiculous because you've got so many teams in there with parachute payments that everybody else has to then spend just to keep up. And if you do have any ambition, you have to, you have to then match those wages, which means you're, you're, you're jeopardizing the future of your club. The is what actually made Leeds getting up so remarkable because Leeds came up without parachute payments. They've not had parachute payments for, I guess, 13 years. If you can say, well, look, you're, you're going to get a steady, a, a smaller amount, but a steady amount to everybody, that's a, that is a better solution. That is, and, that is a much better solution than parachute payments. And institute a salary cap as well that will prevent at least yeah. those wages becoming an issue longer than any parachute payments would have been serviced, um, you know, for those clubs that went down. But we, we've, we've said bribe, we've said quid pro quo, we're getting into the land of uh, American presidential impeachment at the moment. But, the, but, but essentially, it's the same thing is that, Chinch, you mentioned about the opportunism because of the pandemic is mm. there any situation that would have provided these set of circumstances that isn't the pandemic because 
I know well, probably not. About... No, probably not. He probably needed this shove to actually start things moving along or the conversation to start properly. Right. And, and, and that is why we're, we're having this conversation today about opportunity versus opportunism. If, if, is there any difference between opportunity and opportunism? If there would have been no situation, I appreciate they've been talking about it for a while, but to, to kind of make this public, and I appreciate the point, Roy, you made about Sam Wallace. He, he, he's done the journalism, he's got it out, but it just happens to be at this time of great structural turmoil, financial instability in the game because of the pandemic. So is there any difference between opportunity and opportunism if any, any stakeholder in this situation would seek a quid pro quo and it just seems that that quid pro quo or bribe is more palatable because of the environment in which it is being laid forth? Yeah, if it's opportunism, if you pass this money down, you have more control if that's what you're after. You pass the money down and the clubs, as Steve said there, if clubs then mismanage that money, and still go to the wall in time, the Premier League might well say, well, we've done our bit, we handed the money down, that's your problem, you've gone to the wall anyway. The opportunity would be to say, well, right, is it the Premier League's responsibility, not just to pass the money down, but then to say, we need to control how you manage that money. Because if you're still, like Macclesfield and, and Berry, if you're still, if that's not going to make any difference in the long term for the next 20, 25 years, what is the point in handing that money down? But if you feel that is enough, handing the money on over to you, if you make mistakes, that's your lookout. If it's an opportunity for the Premier League to care about the structure of English football, then maybe things do need to be changed, but they need to maybe care more about how the lower league clubs run their businesses as well. Or is that not in the Premier League clubs' remit? We've got enough problems ourselves. We pass the money on. It is down to you now. We can't then say, well, right, we'll look at your books. Well, again, is there going to be a salary cap? We're going to look at transfer fees. We're going to look at everything to actually enable you to use that money year after year wisely and enable the pyramid to stay in place because that would be the opportunity in all this is to keep everybody alive but keep everybody alive not for the next two years but for the next 20 25 years that's what steve's talking about the management of the lower league clubs is vitally something that's maybe been lost a little bit with all the talk of money and vast sums of money actually the day-to-day -day running of these clubs if they're going to get run to the ground no amount of money will ultimately save them and how much of this this conversation that we had during the pandemic was about um, those stakeholders being self-serving and needing essentially not to find any sort of agreement, but only propagating those views that will benefit them. So th th this story has been greeted with a whole load of disagreement. There are loads of people who say that they don't like the idea, but you can understand that there is not necessarily going to be some sort of consensus. There isn't, we are not going to find an agreement to this situation because there are so many people within it who are seeking not agreement, but benefit. And that's the problem. So if you lay out a plan, anybody who lays out a plan will have huge disagreement because they are suggesting a quid pro quo that might benefit them, obviously, and some other large stakeholder who in this situation is the EFL in this morass of financial instability. So how, how can you provide a plan that doesn't do that? I just, You're trying to find a solution that difficult. suits everybody. And it's it doesn't seem... It? It, it, it seems Would you to rather be have a solution, at least? Exactly. Uh, it's whether, we can, it's whether we can get to a solution that works. Surely it's going to be skewed more in the Premier League club's favour because they're the ones that seemingly have to be the generous ones in terms of, if it is about money, moving the money down the chain. They're always going to be criticised because they got money in the first place and they're basically passing this on to keep clubs afloat. Is there a solution? And obviously it hasn't been kind of talked about yet. I've not heard it. A solution that suits absolutely every party. Look, I, I, there's... there's clearly a conversation to be had and we should be careful not to get too exercised about it because a lot of these proposals that have been been leaked are, are simply a, a maneuvering 
to gauge reaction, aren't they? To find out what's acceptable, what isn't. It, it would seem, one assumes that 14 out of 20 Premier League clubs would have to vote to reduce the number of Premier League clubs to 18 and hand over power of that 18 team Premier League to six clubs plus another three. I can't see how that is going to be voted for. And as Rory suggested earlier, that's, that's the bit that's likely to go out of the window in terms of posturing elsewhere. But in terms of, I, don't, I just don't buy into how we can sort of agree that it's a bribe but say, also say it's the Premier League looking to take care of the EFL. You don't pay a bribe to benefit the person receiving the bribe. You pay it to benefit yourself in the long run. So surely that, that is, if, if, we're, if we're sort of in agreement that that, that, that is what we're, we're describing that £250 million as, then we should be careful about how much credit is attached to that money filtering down. Well, that, that's what makes it more a quid pro quo then, doesn't it? Yeah. In this and situation. then the other thing is, is remember, £250 million is effectively the equivalent of one mistake each in the transfer market by the 20 Premier League clubs. A Lazar Markovic each. So shouldn't we be saying, lads, if, if, if this is how you're going to do it, the number's got to be bigger than that. And well, the other thing is that the, the, the other 14 Premier League teams are getting nothing and yet having their money spent. They are saying, actually, this 250 million quid is coming from, every, from everybody, but it's just our idea. And they're the ones getting the benefit. So it's not a quid pro quo for the Premier League. And that is a structural problem. And I do wonder whether, as Steve sort of hints at, they've, they've kind of floated the, the extreme version of it so that a watered down version might, pass, might seem more palatable. That's what I'd do. That, that is, um, and a lot of people listening will, will understand this from, from the... the uh, conversation, particularly in America, in, in American politics, the Overton window, the Overton window is, window is a set of policies that are palatable to a majority of the mainstream at any one time in history. And there is a suggestion, particularly in American politics, but you can apply it to this, that if you are to suggest something which is considered by the mainstream at that particular time to be extreme, you shift the conversation so that a compromise thereafter is still a considerable shift, but not quite as far as the initial suggestion that was made. So what the Premier League could end up looking like is some sort of version of this because the conversation has started in what they would consider and others who have objected to it as being an, an extreme solution to what is becoming an extreme problem. And eventually, as those negotiations take take place and go forth, you might end up having a compromise, which is, had we not had this plan initially suggested, we might consider at this point to be quite a considerable change, but compared to the plan that has now been made public, it will be less and a dilution, as you said, Rory, a watered down version of it, and therefore much more palatable. And that is a technique to try and have the conversation move forward in a progressive manner. So, for example, you could, you could easily see someone coming back and saying, well, look, we don't like the voting rights thing, but we could maybe, if it was a simple majority, rather than a 14 out of 20, if it was just 11 against 9, maybe that would be better. And may, maybe deep down that's what the Premier League want. I think, funnily enough, that you could remove quite a lot of the voting rights stuff and have the outline of a pretty good plan that would still work for the elite. I, I suspect that the bit that's driving something Liverpool have been fixated on for a while is that they feel that the overseas rights should not be shared equitably because effectively the teams that aren't being shown on TV overseas as, as, or aren't being watched overseas are getting the benefit of Liverpool and Man United and Man City and Chelsea and Arsenal and Spurs fans. They're, you know, Burnley are getting the, the, the same amount of money or 
I think it's 1.7 to 1.0 or something. Basically, Burnley get an inflated amount of that money because Manchester United are popular in China. And you, I think their view is, well, hang on, that doesn't really make any sense. And as much as, again, I don't agree with it, there is a, there is a logic that says that the Premier League's rules were drawn up in a world that does not reflect the reality we have now in terms of how popular it is. It was designed so that the... And an imbalance. There was not such an, yeah. an imbalance. The domestic, the domestic TV deal was, was designed to be shared on that egalitarian model, but they hadn't thought about massive international rights deals. But the other thing that I think is really important is the, the longer... Sorry, Steve. Is the longer-term context, which is it's not long since the bid six and a few others were busy saying, we want to play the season out. Do you remember this during the pandemic? That there was, a, there was a big thing about whether we should play the season. And there were a, half a dozen clubs whose interest was basically, let's stop the season, you, we can keep our money. We will cost you, we will cost all of you a load of money just so we don't have to get relegated. That was the view of the bottom six. They were perfectly happy to spend Manchester United and Manchester City and Tottenham's money so that they didn't get relegated. That is no less self-interest than what the big six are doing now. And I think that what, what might have shifted, apparently Rick Parry wanted to unveil this plan in April. And Rick Parry, to be fair to him, has been talking about a lot of this stuff for a long time. He, the pandemic obviously got in the way and meant it wasn't appropriate. There was other, other stuff to think about. But I do wonder how much of the voting rights stuff comes from the big six looking at what happened in March and April and thinking, these are the clubs are citing the collective benefit when it, when it suits them. They, they do not believe in the collective benefit when it doesn't work for them. Because they were happy. They had all reached the point where the Premier League's wealth was such that, they would, that it was more important to them not to play football than it was to play football. And that, I think, is... I wonder if that's what's, what set, set it in stone, this idea. Look, we can't have these relatively transient members of this, of this league. It's not like the NFL or the NBA where they're all set in stone, they're all there the whole time. They can all act in sort of proper concert where the, the big sets are looking at, or the permanent members of the Premier League effectively, which makes West Ham's inclusion a bit dodgy, are looking at it and thinking, well, look, the, you know, these teams, they come up for two, three, four, five years and then they go down, but they have, this, they have this say on policy. And actually when you think, and again, I don't agree with it, but when you think about it, that's a bit strange that these kind of, relatively transient members of the community get as much say as the people who are there the whole time. That is, that I, I can see in the context of the year we've had why the big six might think you are taking advantage of our collective approach when it suits you, but you're not prepared to look at it in other things. Whilst I can see that the big six would have that view, what's wrong with a few different voices occasionally? A different approach, a different interpretation. I don't, I know you're not, I know you're not saying that that, that is a bad thing, but it just feels as though there's a degree of, as is so often the case, is that the clubs at the top of the Premier League do have the lion's share of the money. Yes, it doesn't come from broadcasting revenue, but the popularity of the Premier League, because of the fierceness of the competition in the Premier League, because of its global popularity, their brand is strengthened, enhanced further by that. They make their money from merchandising, from sponsorship, from corporates at, at their stadiums on match day, which I know is not a, a factor at the moment, uh, from overseas tours. They make vast sums of money beyond the likes of Burnley in that regard. So the, the TV money being shared is what enables the Premier League to have the strength of competition that it does, to have 
the the relative variety of Premier League winners that we've had in recent seasons compared to the other top leagues in Europe. So by these clubs trying to find a way to have an even greater proportion than they already do, they already have the greatest strength in the transfer market. They can already accrue the greatest talent. They can already attract the top players, have the biggest stadiums, generate the income from other areas that they do. So it it just baffles me, this idea that they should also have a greater share of the broadcasting revenue, which by the very nature of the way the Premier League exists is why the competition is so relatively strong. And in the long term, it would be to the competition's detriment if that wealth wasn't evenly distributed because you'd end up in the situation. And we see these graphs all the time. How much money Real Madrid and Barcelona generate compared to the teams at the bottom of La Liga. Likewise, Juventus in Serie A and particularly so PSG in Liga. We don't want that. It it would not be good for the Premier League in the long term. What's particularly interesting to me on this very subject is is the nature of, and we spoke about it during the pandemic, about how the Premier League isn't necessarily a thing in of itself. It is a construct of its 20 member clubs or uh, more importantly, perhaps a construct construct of 14 who might agree of its 20 Premier League clubs. So the Premier League responding quite so vociferously as they have to this story coming out is, is interesting to me because where's the power in that? That surely the Premier League is d- d- derives all of its power from its 20 clubs, but particularly those who are able to, and the big six will say it's them, are able to make it a marketable prospect for the whole world, not, not least just in the UK, but the whole world. So wh- wh- where does this leave the power structure between those clubs that make the Premier League what it is and the Premier League responding to those clubs saying, this is a backroom shady deal that has been done without our knowledge and released without consultation? I've, I find that fascinating because the Premier League, we have often said, isn't a thing. The Premier League is its clubs. So the Premier League responding to its clubs like this I find mm. quite interesting. Well, yeah, and it's weird because who are the Premier League speaking for? Because if you, if you think you've got six and potentially nine clubs on board, then, then that suggests that it's finally balanced and the Premier League actually isn't in a position to have an opinion at all anyway. Because... Isn't it quite revealing, don't you think? Yeah, no, but that's the thing. That, and that's what I mean. That's why I think it's important that, that you, you take it back to like March and April, which was when the Premier League's collective model became very clearly a hindrance because the clubs could not agree on anything because they were all acting out of complete self-interest. And whichever side of that, that line you fall on, there's a correct side and an incorrect side, but whichever, whether you're right or wrong, the, the example that it set was problematic. And I do wonder whether that is, is, what, has, um, is, is what has forced the, the voting rights thing. I have now remembered my point about the BBC. Uh, earlier, uh, Rory uh, made a point that we had to edit out because it was an extended metaphor that got lost halfway through. So, so I'll be as quick as you know. You know how the, I'll be as quick as I can. So you know how the BBC was like a radio station, and then TV and TV got invented. So they thought, well, we better do that, and then digital TV was invented. So they thought, well, we'll have to do loads of that for everybody, and then they invented podcasts, and the BBC were like, well, well we better dominate that thriving independent market. Because otherwise, how would anyone know where to listen to podcasts? And when the internet was invented, they're like, well, we better make sure we have the biggest website in the country because that's with the BBC. And it's this kind of every new technology that, that is created, the BBC just sort of sticks its giant oar in. Careful, Mr. Murdoch. <laughs> Despite the fact... No, but it's true. Like, Mr. Murdoch it's, Jr. 
I, you, don't, you don't work for the Times anymore. Not the, <laughs> not the London Times, anyway. No, nobody loves the BBC more than I do. Partly because I am paid by them quite frequently. But th- there, is, there is a severe problem in, in the British media landscape that the BBC dominates everything and is effectively like, free at the point of access. It's not free. And you can make a case that what the BBC has done is have like, massive operational overreach because it's not, not really meant to do all of that stuff. Like your, your licence fee doesn't need to pay for a website. The Premier League's founding agreement is doing the same thing. That's the, the point that a lot of the big clubs would make. They don't mind the domestic TV revenue being split equally because that's the original agreement. That's, that's what the Premier League was founded on. But then they've signed all these massive international rights agreements which suddenly have to be split, split basically equally as well. And they're a bit like, well, hang on, that, that isn't really what that agreement was about. And also the teams that are driving that revenue are, it's not the lead as a whole that drives that, that revenue. And equally, it's being used to apply to lots of different technologies. So individual clubs in 1992 couldn't stream their games to lots of fans all around the world because the technology didn't exist. But now they do. And I think the big clubs have, have, and certainly Liverpool have thought about it for a while. Their point has been, well, look, actually, maybe we need to reflect the fact that the world has changed a little bit rather than taking this like envelope that on which are written the, it's like a menu, isn't it? On which are written the founding agreements of, of the Premier League and apply it 30 years in the future when the world looked completely different. And that was my parallel. Um, so uh, well, there we will leave it. Um, and if you're wondering uh, where the, um, the tones of Andy Hinchcliffe and the contributions of his big brain were, he had to pop out to the loo during that uh, conversation. So um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. But I was, I was like everybody else, I was listening to such, I, I was being educated. So yes, I've been to the lavatory. I'm 51 years old. I can't sit here for an hour and a half. I'll need to go. My bladder's not that big and it's old. But it was such good content from Stephen Rory that I just, I just <laughs> let it wash over me and enjoyed it. I feel cleansed, educationally cleansed. But uh, you will contribute to this, I can absolutely guarantee you. Now, last week's soccer story was the tease trailer for the full version, the feature release that you've all been excitedly looking forward to. It was much longer than 30 seconds. It didn't sound or look as good as the normal tease trailer that you'd see, but at least it didn't give away the ending because it hadn't happened yet. On Thursday evening, Chinch broadcasted live with esteemed commentator Stephen Wyeth for the very first time. So it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe and Stephen Wyeth tell us a very specific tale of one particular incident of their broadcasting day together with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Steve, I don't know whether I should start the story, but obviously I, I, can, I can fill in uh, the, the listeners with, with lots and lots of detail. But I, I, you know, I've commentated, co-commentated on hundreds and hundreds of matches, and I never truly felt that it could be a... Uh, it'd be spiritual. Uh, but working with Stephen Wyeth, I was... I felt like I was, I was floating. It was just so easy. It was like we'd worked together many, 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 many times and we clearly hadn't. But there was, a, there was an understanding there. There was an empathy there. There was a love there, a commentary love in that booth. And it was just, it was absolutely joyous. That's how I felt. Steve, did you feel the same working with me? I think the, the feelings that were coursing through your veins were a consequence of a heavily glazed donut. <laughs> Or and not just not just one. one, yeah, yeah. But we went for the we went for the minis, which we felt well. We're eating smaller donuts, but then we did eat more of them. And certainly the branded ones, I think we can now categorically say are considerably better than the the ones that Hugh grabs for a pound for a pack of four from near the front door in Tesco. We always knew that, Steve. We always knew that. But it was always going to, you know, having a donut with Hugh. 
a sub a kind of a substandard donut with Hugh, and then having a a, a can we mention the name of the, the brand of donut? We shouldn't really do that because there's many many excellent In, donuts the, out there. The, there is only one brand of donut. Is there? All of the others are non uh, unbranded. Okay, donuts. well we're going to go with that brand of having that brand of donut that quality with you, Steve. It's just it's not even a contest, is it? So it hang on was, a minute. Are you deflecting to the extent that you actually more memorable? The more memorable moment was you having donuts rather than the ninety minutes of, it was of always flowing be. football and your ability to describe it beautifully. Listen, we are we are both high quality professionals. We knew, Steve, didn't we? What kind of uh, what kind of experience we were going to give the viewers? It, it is for us when we're travelling a long distance to a game. It is more about. The, the, the travel than the destination is we know what we're going to produce we're going to be brilliant we're going to work well together let's just enjoy ourselves on the way we have to do this at the end our professionalism kicks in we are brilliant but let's have a nice time getting there did you have to be socially distanced in the booth uh we had a perspex screen between us right okay. quite That's... thick quite thick as somebody on Twitter pointed out, it looks like Clarice was visiting Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> who, was, who was who? I think I know who was who. Were you Clarice? Yeah, I Steve was Clarice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Was, yeah. Did you Part, have... Partly because you were drinking Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have those moments that often uh, a novice pair do where you spoke over each other or you weren't quite sure about what body language meant uh, when to speak and all that you know Come the kind on. of problems that we have 200 episodes in that is clear as i say we are professionals we are quality you employers you get the best that clearly never happened the one thing that did happen that hasn't happened to me before half time steve says are you a little bit hungry so i said yeah yeah i'll have something do you want sushi? Half-time sushi? Now that's now you don't get that with Peter Drury or with Martin Tyrell, Rob Holt. Half-time sushi? Look, Extraordinary I, experience. Tyler's <laughs> giving you a pasty at most. <laughs> or nothing. It was a joyous experience. I don't mind admitting that when that hard count of 10 came ahead of kickoff, Chinch, for us to pick up on the Nations League graphic that I didn't have a few extra butterflies. Squeaky bum time. That moment, that moment suddenly... My mate might just be about to discover that I've been winging it for a while. <laughs> I did feel the same, Stephen. I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> it wasn't just me. But I, I, did, I did think that I was going to need to make sure that if the first half didn't go well, and thankfully it did, it was a triumph. Yeah. We, I, I felt like our first half went nearly as well as Iceland's first half did against <laughs> Romania. Is that I, I needed to pull out something pretty impressive during the interval, just in case. So that's where the sushi came in. Okay, that's starting to sound a bit sexual. So we'll leave it there. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I just wonder, Steve, whether we're ever going to get the chance to do it again. Well, I suppose we will discover how satisfactory the 90 minutes were as to... I did try, though, didn't I? Afterwards, I did speak to the, the head honcho. I did put a word in saying, because Iceland have made the final, you know, if I'm available to maybe do the final, if you want me. And then again, clearly, I'd have to work with Steve because we worked on the semifinals. So I've, I've sown the seed. I can't do any more, Steve. And, and I have, I've seen a lot of hungry chinch in, in the last couple of months because I'm covering their Nations League group. So having done Iceland in the, in the playoff semi-final and with my in-depth knowledge of Dominic Jabajloy and the rest of the hungry boys, we are the, we are the perfect pairing for that final. Is that how you pronounce it, Jabajloy? It's how I've been pronouncing it. <laughs>
I'm glad that you know a lot about Hungary because that's why you would have brought the sushi for half time. In addition to the fact that you'd oh, nice one, yeah, awful pre match. That's the kind of content you would have got if I had been doing uh, the commentary on Nations League. So, is there a sense that perhaps now that um, you'll be able to drop in a private joke or something about Atavelding in the next commentary? No, we did have a we did have a bit of a giggle, didn't we? There was a one of the players coming off and trying to con the referee and waste a bit of time, Steve, didn't we? And you said, "Oh, is that something you would do with new players?" Like, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But then afterwards, we were a bit concerned about, is this too much of a comedy show? But I'm not sure that was actually funny at the time that we did it. So no one would have noticed. And no one was probably listening anyway. But we did get a bit of personality in there, didn't we? I, I don't think anybody is going to be complaining afterwards that we were too humorous. 